Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right. Hello. How are you doing? This is Brad Listy. This is the Other People Podcast. It's good to be with you. Thank you for listening. I'm here in Los Angeles, California, and I have on the program today Tao Lin. This is my fourth conversation with Tao Lin over the past decade. Tao Lin has a new novel out on Vintage. It is called Leave Society. His other books include Trip, a nonfiction book about psychedelics published in 2018, the novel Taipei, published in 2013, Selected Tweets, which was uh, published in 2015 and features uh, Selected Tweets by Tao Lin and Mira Gonzalez, as well as other books, the novel Richard Yates, the novella Shoplifting from American Apparel, and so on. Leave Society is another singular work by Tao Lin. What I always feel when I read his books is that there's nobody else on earth who could have possibly written them. And I guess you could say that for anybody who writes a book, but with Tao, it feels especially applicable. He's so unique. He's such a unique thinker and uh, a brilliant writer. And I'm very pleased to get to share the conversation with him in just a moment. Today's episode is brought to you by Farrar Strauss and Giroux, publisher of the novel Embassy Wife by best-selling author Katie Crouch. Chris Abani calls Embassy Wife, quote, an honest and complicated novel of true human beings struggling to be more than they are with less than they should have. And Natalie Bazile says that Embassy Wife is, quote, keenly observed and expertly crafted, a wickedly irresistible novel. I agree. I read this novel over my uh, summer vacation. And it's one of those books that is equal parts intelligent and entertaining and funny. It's everything you want from a storyteller. Embassy Wife is set in the world of the United States Foreign Service in uh, Namibia, in Africa. 
It's a novel that asks us what it means to be human in this world, even as it helps us laugh in the face of our foibles and our seemingly impossible states of personal affairs. Embassy Wife, the new novel by Katie Crouch, out there now from Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. So my guest today, again, is Tao Lin. He is celebrating the publication of a new novel called Leave Society, available from Vintage. And I feel like the conversations that I have with Tao on this show just keep getting better. I've gotten to know him through the years. I've read his work through the years. And uh, I'm fascinated by his evolution as a person and as an artist and um, I just feel like it's, I don't know, it's work that's right up my alley and it's work that I think is often misunderstood and is more representative of the, like the human experience of life as it, as it is lived now than most books I read. It's also idiosyncratic and delightfully strange and funny and always very smart. So just uh, great to have Tao back on the show and excited to share news of his new book with you here. So here I am in conversation with Tao Lin and the new novel, One More Time, is called Leave Society. Mm, Yeah, I'm glad to hear that. And it was good finally getting to read a full-length book of yours. I read your novel, Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. When was that? I read it, like, was it earlier this year? I want to say. Yeah, it was, like, either late last year or early this year. Yeah, and I enjoyed that a lot. I felt it lived up to the title. Oh, well, I'm glad. It was good to read that. Well, yeah, I know. It's funny because there's. I think I said this to you maybe in an email but there is, uh, especially when somebody's working in nonfiction, as you did in Trip or in Taipei and in Leave Society, where it's autofiction, uh, like I realize there's some artifice and some construct involved in making these books, but I definitely feel like I have a deep sense of familiarity with who you are and like what your deep concerns are. Um, I, I hope that's yeah. fair to say. And I imagine you, you have this relationship with a lot of your readers where they have like a pretty deep knowledge of you and your mind and your thoughts and feelings. Whereas like, you know, the person you're talking with, even if there's somebody that you're friends with, you know, there's a, there's a disparity there. So on that level, I was glad to have you read something of mine that worked in a similar vein so we could even things out a little bit. <laughs> mm, yeah. Yeah. It's always good to do that. I feel like, my partner, Yuka, has read so much of my work, and she's only published barely anything, so I try to get more of her writing to read. Well, just so that you can have, like, yeah, you, you want to have, like, I, I, in fact, I don't think there's a better way to get to know somebody than if they've done some deep writing. Uh, like, even if it's an epistolary relationship, you know, where you're trading emails or letters with somebody, uh, it doesn't have to be books, but... I want to say, Carrie, my wife and I, we got to know one another in those early days. We did a ton of like instant messaging. This was like in the days of like AOL instant messenger. 
Uh, and then email too, maybe. And she's really funny, like, uh, just as a person, but especially like in writing and maybe especially, uh, as an instant messenger, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, she's got like a quick wit. And so I don't know, I, I'm an advocate for that. I love writing letters, uh, to, mm -hmm. and trading emails and all that kind of stuff. Like it's a, I think it's like an underrated form of communication. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And I like sharing my communications with other people to my friends and partner too. And it's good being able to do that. Now with email, you can just forward them something instead of having to explain what you talk <laughs> with a friend about. Right. I mean, not instead of just a different, more intimate way, showing them exactly what you said. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, uh, I don't know. I feel like sometimes I'm a, I'm a better writer in email than I am when I'm trying to write a book. Mm -hmm. And I feel like in some ways I can have that same feeling about friends of mine who may be like excellent writers, but something about a really good email from somebody who's a good writer can be every bit as satisfying to me as a, as a, you know, a chapter out of a really good book. I mean, it, you know, mm. it's, it's maybe not the most common thing, but it can happen. Mm. Yeah, and your novel was so autobiographical and it told so much about your life. It covered like 11 years or something. Do you think about getting that out there in part to just share more of your life with your friends? Because with the whole book, you can tell them so much yeah. more than in person. Yeah, I think so. I think there's that, that uh, desire... I think too, it was kind of, uh, because the book in question, I, I like, I like how now Tao's interviewing me about my book. <laughs> yeah. I've been talking about myself so much. I just, no, it's good to, <laughs> to just deflect sometimes. I, I like doing it. No. And I don't mind either. Cause this show is always about, you know, conversation and, mm. uh, in its most improvised like form and it's a two way. So I would just say that, yeah, I think it's about, wanting to communicate maybe parts of my deepest self and experience and to be really honest. Uh, mm -hmm. and then also as a, as a creative matter, uh, like there was a lot of trauma around my son's, uh, diagnosis. I have a disabled child for people listening who don't know anything about me who might be coming to this show for the first time. And mm. so that's a central concern of the book. And what I was finding as a writer um, is that, A, I was struggling for a long time to write this book in a way that was satisfying, to me anyway, you know. We're still out there on the market with it, so I don't know if I succeeded in making it palatable to others. But this was the first time that I was able to to get it down in a way that was satisfying to me. And I needed to do that um, because what I was finding is that when I sat down to write anything else, this just kept coming up. And I think that that makes, um, there's a, there's a obvious logic to that. Uh, you sort of can't avoid the big things in life as an artist, or at least I can't. And I needed to address it not only because I needed to address it and to look at it closely as a way of moving through it, uh, to some degree, but also so that I could do other things creatively that maybe weren't so, um, 
I don't want to say sad because the book isn't all sad, but just, just grueling, difficult. You know, it's a tough book to write. It's a tough experience to try to look at closely because it was very hard. But I'm glad I did it, and I know that I needed to. Yeah, and you also wrote about a lot of other stuff in it, like quitting Twitter and this podcast. You have scenes. I, I was just looking it over, and you have one where you're talking to Tim O'Brien, he's talking about landmines and war and you're <laughs> finding yourself wandering in your mind, thinking about your book. That was interesting. I think I've had a lot, I mean, I've obviously had a lot of conversations with writers over the years and, uh, it's inevitable. I think when you're also trying to be a writer, uh, you know, you're working on your own writing and you're having like weekly conversations with, one or more writers usually who are like incredibly gifted and accomplished. Mm -hmm. It's hard not to draw like comparisons in your mind or to like reflect on your own work as you're hearing from them. But mm. that bit, you know, there's something comedic about that part of it because he's talking about like this horrific experience in a theater of war as a teenager. And I'm drawing a comparison to like my like creative struggle <laughs> with a novel. Mm -hmm. Like they're very different experiences, obviously. And, uh, Yet there, there I was, you know, the mind, my mind anyway, just, uh, has a tendency to spiral, um, at times. Like it's a, you know, it's a bit of an out of control machine. I think that's how it is for most people. And I just happened to catch myself. Mm -mm. Yeah. That part was funny. The book is really funny. I feel like all right, even with all the tragedy, I guess, in it, I feel like there's a, a lot of the same, uh, like a lot of the same creative choices at work in your, in your books. Um, you have a great deadpan humor. Oh, I was reading, uh, Brad Phillips's blurb for your book. And I think he said something to the effect of, you know, it's serious about funny things and funny about serious things. Mm -mm. And yeah. I think that speaks to what I'm talking about, you know, where, like I say, some of the biggest laughs I've ever had have been at funerals. Like some of, some of my best moments, like where I felt like most human and most connected to other people. Uh, and just like, I don't know what, I don't know how to even describe it, have been in like the depths of real sadness. Um, or at mm. least, or at least in a context that would, that is traditionally associated, you know, with sadness. And it's hard not to notice the strangeness of that and, um, and to examine why that is. You know, I think a lot of the bullshit falls away, uh, weirdly when you're confronted with the quote unquote worst of life. Yeah. I felt, I've also felt that focusing or learning about the worst in life can help me stop getting upset about trivial things. Like one example from Leaf Society, I write about this book, Surviving Evil by Karen Wetmore. And she writes about being taken into the MK Ultra program by the CIA as a teenager. And they put her into near continuous isolation for like seven months without any clothes or in three or four days without food. And then they give her this drug, Metrazole, which is used on Soviet gulags to produce overwhelming terror and physical pain. And then 
they monitored her over the next like 25 years and continued to do experiments on her, like dosing her with LSD. Reading stuff like that, one effect is to give me perspective. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, that's like an extreme example. Um, but I, I think I do similar things in my life. Like in a strange way, I think having a, a child with disabilities who has to go through quite a lot, like, you know, so like multiple therapy appointments a week and it's a struggle mm. just to walk, you know, doesn't know how to swim yet. We just had his first swimming lesson. He jumped into the pool for the first time. Um, but it's perspective giving, you know, it's hard to complain too much when you see, like your six year old son is, you know, sort of, uh, soldiering through multiple therapy appointments without whining. And, um, I don't know, it sort of even things out and I don't want to sound hokey about it, but there's, uh, there's a lot to be grateful for. Like, it's kind of a privilege in a, in a way to, to be, uh, a guardian of a or a parent of a child like that you know what i mean like to be uh proximate to it um is that a word you know what i mean to be near it yeah and to get to witness it um it deliver it gives a lot to me in ways that i didn't really foresee yeah that makes sense to me because if you're just getting if everything's just going well for you in life you don't have as much of an opportunity to grow I feel like, like, I feel like I was kind of spoiled growing up. So I did a lot of growing and learning later on. How were you spoiled? Mm, I feel like my mom just loved me a lot. And I thought she was overprotective back then. Actually, now I don't think I was spoiled. I feel like my mom did a good job. But my brother and dad would accuse my mom of spoiling me. Why do you, do you think she was worried about you? I don't think she was worried. I feel like she was just a really loving mother. Like, I remember in middle school, I read about this in a book, at a assembly, one of my classmates mock choked me because I had gotten this valuable magic card and he was just like jealous. And then my mom came down and scolded that kid. <laughs> and that felt a little bit like I got upset about that. How old were you? I feel like I was 12, maybe. Oh, right. So, like, at the age where, like, you don't want your mom to, like, come in and interfere. Mm -mm. Yeah. In the book, the character Lee, as a teenager, he blamed his mom for all his problems. He was very shy and socially anxious, and he felt like his mom... had contributed to that through overprotection. And then he gets in fights with his mom where he wants 
her mom, his mom, to fix his problems by punishing him and putting him into difficult situations. And he realizes that's not going to work and he shouldn't be blaming people. And then throughout his life, he finds other reasons, many other reasons for why he's so shy and depressed and just feels unable to be normal and happy. And then as an adult, he wants to return all the love his mom gave him and try to repair all the blaming he did in the past. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So what it makes me think of is this notion, like I've read it in a lot of different books through the years or heard it said in like speeches by smart people that like we're responsible (laughs) for our, our lives. Like ultimately the buck stops with us. Uh And I think that's true. Um, I know that sometimes outside circumstances intervene and like really bad things happen to people who don't deserve it. And, you know, that's obviously not uh, the responsibility of uh, the person who's suffering, but how we respond to that uh, as an example is our responsibility. And I don't know if it's just me, but that's, it's like a really hard lesson to learn. Like, I feel like in some ways I've grown up really slowly Uh, I don't know if you feel like that. Uh, I can sometimes feel embarrassed about it. It's like, I need to get my shit together (laughs) and like, Mm. and not blame other people or, Mm. you know, at some point you have to accept responsibility for your existence. And I think that's part of what this book is about. You know, that's what Lee's character is about is coming to that moment in his life. Yeah, and also finding other things, not only to blame, but to just point towards other factors for why he's unhappy. Like he keeps learning about how toxified he is in all these different ways by like nuclear radiation, electromagnetic radiation, pesticides, and how he figures out that he lives in a dominator society and that it hasn't always been that way, but that has a really bad effect on everyone in the society. And he didn't know anything 
about any of these things as a teenager. So he couldn't put his blame into behavior that would actually help him. Like even just getting more sleep and exercise. So all his blame just went to his mom. So can you elaborate just a little bit on dominator society? You mentioned earlier when you were talking about how you've been reading bell hooks, that it, mm. it's uh, kind of another word for, or another phrase for uh, patriarchy. Mm -hmm. But when you talk about dominator society, you're talking about a society that is like kind of hyper-masculine where the, the power is centered in the hands of men in, instead of women, or at least it's not anywhere close to equally distributed. Is that accurate or is there more to it? Mm, yeah, that's what our current dominator society is like. But it's also possible for there to be a dominator society that's female-dominated. And I got these terms dominator in partnership from Rianne Eisler, who I heard of from Terrence McKenna, because Terrence McKenna would always talk about how people used to live in partnership societies. And then I read Rianne Eisler's book, The Chalice and the Blade. And she points out that, or in her view, the two underlying modes of relating to each other personally and in society aren't capitalist and communist or religious and secular or industrialized and pre-industrialized or matriarchy or patriarchy, but it's partnership and dominator. And she invented those terms partly because she felt like there wasn't a way to describe a society that was egalitarian that didn't have sexism because if you call it a patriarchy that means it's male dominated but if you call it a matriarchy that means it's female dominated so she came up with the term partnership so people could talk about a society with equal rights without having to use patriarchy and matriarchy yeah, because then Does that it, makes it, sense. Yeah, like dichotomizes it. It turns it into an us versus them, like whichever side of the line you might fall on. Um, mm -mm. Is there yeah. is there uh, and like um, is it the uh, the cattle? How do you say it? cattle hook? Yeah, cattle hook. I've heard it pronounced a lot of ways. Okay, yeah. would this be an example of a partnership society in history? Yeah, yeah, that's one, and another thing in her argument is that humans used to exemplify the partnership model throughout being hunter-gatherers and then even after settling down and starting agriculture for thousands of years people lived in partnership there was no war and everyone seemed to worship nature in the form of a female deity until like 6,500 years ago when groups of people started invading each other. And then since then, it's just been in dominator mode, is her argument, which to me is hopeful because it makes the current state of the world seem like an aberration that we could recover from. Well, but it also, sometimes it's just nice to have a diagnosis that 
makes sense and seems clear and true, you know, because I think in the absence of one, you know, you talk about living through it as an adolescent, you, you know, something's wrong, but you don't know what, and you just kind of know that you feel bad and having some sense of why, it, you know, even though it doesn't necessarily ameliorate the condition can on its own make you feel some sense of relief. Yeah. Yeah. And I've been getting that personally through all the stuff I talked about, about toxification. And then I've been getting it through history by reading Rian Eisler and other authors. There's a lot of authors who write about the religion that used to exist and they call it the goddess religion. And that religion still survives in a lot of the world. One way is through Taoism. People have studied it and they think that Taoism came from this ancient goddess religion. Hmm. Have you done reading on Taoism? Yeah, I've read a few books. I found it really interesting. It seems to focus on nature a lot. And then it thinks that Tao is this mysterious force underlying everything. And then it just has a lot of poetic descriptions of Tao, comparing it to water and talking about how it's, it's like the lowest thing. Water always goes to the ground and how it smooths everything and how it can break down big rocks gradually, stuff like that. Have you heard much about Taoism? Uh, no, I mean, yes, I've heard of it and probably have read about it through the years. Um, mm -hmm. And I've, re I've read a couple books about it, but I feel like there's a corollary. I do a lot of Buddhist reading and there's a corollary in Buddhism called Dhamma, which is much the same. Uh, you know, mm. I think they're, they're very related in terms of my, at least my read on it. And mm. it's slippery, you know, it's like, it's one of those terms I probably hear every day or read every day uh, for most mm. of my adult life. And I, if you put me on the spot and asked me to explain it to you, I would probably fuck it up or like stumble, you know, it's like, a, there's something ineffable, but it's the underlying essence of things or the deep truth of things. I think, mm. I, I think one of the things that's helped me, um, you know, in like the Buddhist study that I've done in in my adult life is this notion of two truths. There's this kind of mm -hmm. doctrine in Buddhism called the two truths. Like there's conventional truth, which is that like I'm Brad and you're Tao and we're talking on our computers via something called Skype. And you're mm -hmm. in a, you're in a place called Hawaii and I'm in a place called California and you're wearing something called a shirt and I'm wearing something called a shirt and I'm drinking something called tea and you know, all this different stuff, all the stuff of ordinary life. But then underlying all that is the deeper truth, um, which is much more ineffable and hard to language. And, you know, my psychedelic experiences speak very much to that. I, I think when you're in the throes of a psychedelic experience, you become very well aware of uh, how little you know and how much more there is to reality than meets the human eye, you know, especially the human eye when it's not like fully dilated. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, so yeah, I mean, Tao, Dhamma, um, 
the underlying uh, nature of things, you know, the word, a word that comes to mind is mystery, um, which I think mm. you, you and I both use in our books. I mean, you know, we both, I think, mm. I think a lot of us, you know, walking around sense that we're in the middle of something deeply mysterious and barely known, you know, human beings know virtually nothing, you know, about what's going on. Um, you know, I don't want to diminish like the real achievements of good thinkers and scientists through the millennia. You know, we have made strides as a species, but in the grand scheme of things, you know, we've only been here for a blink. Uh, I think it would be hubris to imagine that we've got uh, all that much figured out. Yeah, I feel like that doesn't get talked about enough. I feel like dominator society wants people to think scientists have figured everything out and that there's just the material world and other stuff just isn't real. It's imaginary. And I think too, you know, when it comes to psychedelics uh, and kind of the mainstreaming of psychedelics, both currently, but also I think more critically, like in the earlier part of, uh, like, I guess maybe not our personal history. I was born in 75. Maybe I was, I don't know the exact timing. You may know it better, but you're a bit younger than I am. But there was a moment, I think in time when psychedelics were, um, becoming mainstreamed and people were starting in the medical and scientific communities were starting to study them and realize, um, how valuable they are and how they can be used therapeutically um, and otherwise. And it was totally shut down. You know, I think that hit that part of our history is maybe coming a little bit more to the fore now that psychedelic research is reemerging as a valued area of study. But it's a perfect example of people with a strictly materialist worldview <laughs> um, putting a stop on thinking and study and experience that cuts against those notions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And meditation is another good way to get out of this materialist mindset. Have you tried summoning aliens recently? I, you know, I do a little bit, uh, and I should give some backstory. So Tao and I, to give uh, listeners context, have been emailing and talking about this sort of stuff. There are documentaries out there. There's one called, uh, God, what was the one that I sent you? It was called the, it's a, it's a, was that the phenomenon? Yeah. The, the phenomenon. And then Stephen, yeah. then Stephen Greer's work. Mm -hmm. And he leads these like group meditations, you know, where they go out into nature and they'll do, I think transcendental meditation or something similar. Mm -hmm. And they'll focus on trying to communicate with like interstellar, life forms and ask them to show up and mm -hmm. they they report that they do show up and there is some mm. photographic imagery like in these documentaries of like you know some sort of lights flashing in the sky i mean you know all the stuff that you would imagine in a in a ufo documentary but uh i try to do stuff like that. Like I tried when I was uh, on my vacation recently and also in Los Angeles, though 
Mm -hmm. I feel like Los Angeles with its light pollution, it just doesn't seem like a place aliens would want to come. Mm -hmm. Um, But when I'm out somewhere where there's more stars, I will look and I'll try to get quiet and I'll silently say like, hey, hello, you know. And the thing that it doesn't, I haven't seen anything. And the thing that I worry about is that I'm, I can't relinquish my doubt fully and I can't relinquish like the silly feeling like there's some element of me that feels silly inside for doing it and Mm. i kind of feel like if there were interstellar life forms out there they would know it and they'd be like this guy's not for real like i'm not sincere enough yet or something yeah yeah he talks about how the biggest thing you have to do is to just believe you can do it believe in it and I've tried to build up that more in myself by reading a lot about aliens and UFOs. The more I read, the more I believe that aliens pervade the universe and that they can travel faster than the speed of light and they could easily go from their galaxy to Earth and that they're all in the solar system they have bases on the moon but they can't just land like on the white house lawn because the u.s military will chase them off and they can't land in a lot of places because of that so I read this book, Schoolyard UFO Sightings or Encounters, and it talks about how a lot of UFO and alien encounters happen on schools, probably because it's one of the only safe places an alien can go. And they also want to interact with kids who haven't been brainwashed by movies like Independence Day to thinking aliens are horrible and scary. In the documentary, you saw the phenomenon. They talked about one of these schoolyard encounters in Zimbabwe Yeah, in 1994. And something like, I forget how many, a lot of kids were in this encounter and then they interviewed the kids and they said that the kids said that the aliens were using telepathy on them and, and putting images in their head and ideas that were basically all about how humans were using technology in the wrong way and destroying the planet. And that was really compelling to me. How, what did you think about that part? That was that was the most moving and compelling uh, UFO-related media that I've ever taken in. Like, mm-hmm. for people listening, they have archival footage because this did make the news. And then I think there was there was as well. There was a Harvard or some Ivy League um, social scientist of some kind who went to Zimbabwe and interviewed these kids on camera about what they had experienced. 
Um, so you have the yeah. incredibly compelling and um, corroborative, is that a word? Corroborating <laughs> testimony yeah. of all these different children interviewed individually about what mm -hmm. they had seen. And it all, you know, there, it all crosses over. Everybody saw the same thing and experienced the same general thing. And it's really hard to watch those kids talk and imagine that they are somehow part of a grand conspiracy to hoodwink everybody into thinking that they saw, uh, you know, uh, a spaceship land and then, and actually interacted with a, with an alien life form that had mm. like a telepathic, uh, ability to communicate. Like one of the things that moved me was talking about how uh, one of the kids talking about, or the kids, not just one of them, but I think multiple kids, if I recall correctly, talking about how the alien wasn't really speaking, but was talking to them telepathically and, and how they all felt sad. Um, mm. the kids all felt like an overwhelming sense of sadness about the earth. <laughs> um, like the, this alien life form was intending to do this, to communicate to them that the stakes are high and that human beings are essentially destroying their own habitat. Um, mm -hmm. and then, uh, in this movie, the phenomenon, they, because this all happened in 1994, they have an on-camera sit down with all of these people, all of these children, whatever it is, 15, 20 years later, and nothing has changed in their account. Um, nothing about their testimony as adults leads me to believe any differently than I did when I was watching them as kids. It's like, like, I think when it comes to this sort of thing, the skept, I'm inherently a kind of a skeptical person and I'm always looking for the bullshit. Like there's gotta be something, you know, some angle that I'm not considering, but this mm -hmm. was this kind of like shut down those doors for me. It was like, there's nothing like the, the, there's no way that this didn't happen uh, mm. based on what I'm seeing here. It's just impossible to think that a bunch of school kids would concoct something like this and work in synchron, you know, uh, in synchronicity to deliver this huge lie and then to hold on to it all the way into adulthood. <laughs> like, what's the payoff? You know, I don't know. They, they would have no motive to do such a thing. So, yeah. And then what group out there would want kids to be lying about people destroying the earth with technology? Like, it would have to be like a health food store or something. <laughs> right. Like, right. Those like if their message was that aliens are telling us that we need to defend ourselves, we need to build bigger militaries, I would believe that might be a lie because there are militaries constantly thinking about how to get bigger budgets and they could implant something like that. But it's not like that. And in the book I read talks about like a hundred different incidents like these. Some of them involve way more kids. The one with the most kids was like 400 kids in Australia somewhere. And then another book I read about UFOs and aliens visiting a certain type of areas, UFOs and nukes. And it talks about how nuclear weapon spaces 
get visited a lot more than other places. And then there's a lot of testimony from people who work on those bases. And they all say that they think the aliens are warning people not to have these nuclear weapons. Because in some of the cases, they shut down the nuclear weapons for a certain amount of time. And to bring it back to Stephen Greer, besides leading these CE5 events, close encounters of the fifth kind, which is when you summon an alien, he also has this thing called the Disclosure Project. And since the 90s, he's gotten almost a 1,000 military, corporate, and government witnesses coming out and just telling about their experiences with UFOs and aliens, ranging from people talking about being on nuclear missile bases and having aliens shoot down beams to seemingly try to scan the weapons so that they can stop any nuclear war to stuff where people in the military have interacted with aliens and recovered bodies. And then the worst is there's people saying that not the normal government, but secret projects within the government have been hoaxing alien abductions since like the 50s to try to instill fear in the people and to create this worldwide view of aliens as a threat. That sounds, to most people, that probably sounds really crazy. It makes the Terrence McKenna spore thing sound just normal. <laughs> but just reading so much stuff and learning about this gradually, it's compelling to me. And then... Well, wait, so I want to ask you, uh, mm-hmm. I think I've asked you this before, but I feel like having witnessed you do this a bit before, like you'll get interested in a subject like Terrence McKenna, for example... And a, and a book will be born of it. And I can feel you mm. getting interested either in email exchanges or on Twitter. Um, you know, I'll, you often share what you're reading. You know, you'll share what books you're reading and you'll get very interested in a topic and you'll kind of go through a bunch of books. That feels like what is happening with you and UFOs and extraterrestrial life forms. Uh, do you feel like you're finding your way to some kind of book about this stuff? Yeah, I've been thinking about how to write about all this stuff. I have a file. I've been trying to write this as a science fiction novel where it goes really far into the future. And the main plot point is that at some point humans try to hoax an alien attack to try to create this really big enemy, sort of like the war on terror. And then at that point, the aliens reveal themselves. And then they usher humans into a new age of peace. 
And I've also been trying to write it as a nonfiction book where I just share what I've learned in a careful way that I'll still be able to publish it because I don't think I can just write a book coming out and say saying the stuff about there being secret projects, hoaxing alien abductions, and have it be published and well-received because that's just viewed as a conspiracy theory. So I have to like go to the edge of what I can say while still not being viewed as a nut. Yeah, I mean and that's hard. That there's some there's some of that I think too in uh, Leave Society. You know, when you're mm. talking about environmental toxins or mm. strange ideas. You know, like mm. I, I guess I would put scare quotes around it because it's like it depends who you are. You know, whether or not these ideas are strange. But I think strange mm-hmm. in the context of modern consumer society. I think some of the things mm. that Lee is concerned with in the book that are, you know, talking about uh, health-related stuff and how toxic our environment is and um, how like modern Western medicine uh, fails in many respects to properly treat people, uh, whereas, you know, more homeopathic remedies, for example, might, you know, do a better job. You know, mm-hmm. you can you can get into a situation, I think, and you can speak to this obviously better than I, where, you know, it might create uh, trouble for you, like with readers and critics. You know, if you go too far in that direction, um, it could either become a distraction to people or it could wind up creating like frictions that could ultimately, I don't know, do damage to the larger creative project that you're undertaking. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, definitely. And I also just want to be convincing to people. And if I cross a certain line with some people, they're just going to start dismissing all my stuff and then that won't be effective at all. So I have to be careful with what I share and how I share it so that it won't, just alienate people. You, you know, what it's making me think of, it's teaching. Uh, mm-hmm. I think you are a good teacher, um, a thoughtful mm-hmm. and careful student of the things that you're interested in, even if these things might seem far afield or wacky to, you know, a more mainstream reader. You know, I'm thinking of Trip, mm-hmm. for example. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that a good teacher always considers his or her audience. Um, mm. you know, and, uh, you know, as a writer writing a book, you, you can never entirely predict who your reader is going to be. So, you know, you have mm. to sort of, you know, you have to sort of write to a place where you think you're going to be able to reach people, um, most effectively, you know, the kind of people that you're hoping to reach within a, a range. But I think there can be a tendency maybe like an emotional tendency when it comes to this stuff, especially if you've done a lot of reading around it and you feel like the mainstream consensus is so wrong. Um, Mm. There could be, I think, an emotional tendency towards like revenge almost on the page Mm. that Mm. might feel good in the way of like a sugar high or something, but that doesn't ultimately serve you as a writer and doesn't serve the reader. And I think that's what you're talking about is like this kind of restraint that um, 
understands that if you if you if you uh, indulge in that emotional tendency, um, you just wind up losing the person, and then then you're not communicating at all. Yeah, yeah. This process of learning stuff that is different than what most people think, and then trying to share it has been has taught me to be careful and patient and think in a more long-term way. Like, with my tweets and interviews and other trans book stuff, I sometimes feel like I'm priming people for the book. Because... The stuff I've read and become convinced by is farther than the book, than leave society. I I feel like I've learned so much stuff that that when I leave something out, it doesn't feel like I'm sacrificing anything because then I can just turn my attention somewhere else. For example, Leave Society used to have stuff about 9-11 in it. And we ended up replacing that with stuff on the Big Bang, which I felt worked even better. It's less political. Yeah, it's a bigger topic, too. It just seems like one of the biggest topics, and it's related to nature and how dominator society simplifies nature. Because in the book I referenced, the Big Bang never happened. It gives evidence that the Big Bang isn't accurate, that the universe wasn't created only 13.8 billion years ago, but at least trillions of years ago and possibly infinite, that possibly it's infinite in space and time. And that's a much more complex universe that I had never considered. I have always found myself struggling with the Big Bang. Mm. Uh, A, because, you know, the science of it, um, beyond me. I'm not a scientific person by nature. You know, that's not my training or uh, my strong suit. Mm -hmm. But just as like a layperson, you know, when someone's describing the universe beginning at uh, like a point like it's, you know what I'm saying? It's just to language it, a point like smaller than a, like an infinitely small, tiny little speck of nothing somehow contained incredible amounts of mass. And then in an instant kind of exploded into the universe. Like it's just, it, it, I don't think anybody could listen to that and say, oh yeah, that makes sense. Like, unless I'm missing something, it just seems unbelievable on its face is what I'm saying. Yeah. I feel like a lot of people feel that intuitively. The problem is that the other, that the alternative that it's always existed, that seems kind of hard to imagine too. Like, where did it come from? (laughs) But both of those seem like hard to believe to me. But in this book, he talks about how there's objects that are so big that they should have taken 100 billion years to form. 
and then he talks about how the background radiation that supposedly is evidence of the Big Bang, how there's tons of other explanations for that. And then he talks about how in the Big Bang theory, the universe is held together more than the mass in it would predict. So since the equation didn't work, that's when they invented dark matter. Because 90% of the matter they can't detect, but they need it to have the gravity to hold together the universe. And then later on, for some reason, they found that that still didn't account for everything. So they invented dark energy, which is this force that supposedly repels everything. And it seems like they just have a theory that is wrong, but they keep trying to fix it by adding these things. And it's just in a far dead end now. Similar to the theory of geocentrism, thinking that the Earth is at the center of the universe. People have thought that for like 15 centuries. And when it didn't match observation, they added something called the epicycle which is they thought that other planets, besides moving in a circle around Earth, also moved in their little own circles. But then that didn't solve everything, so they added something called X-Center, which they said all these orbits were like off-center. And then they added some other thing. And then finally, it wasn't continual refinements that made it work. They had to abandon the whole theory and figure out that the earth isn't at the center. And that's how this book and other people argue the Big Bang Theory is like. I think right now, if you like put a gun to my head and ask me what I really think, I would say that probably the universe has kind of just always been here somehow. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, like there is no beginning or end, you know what I'm saying? Or maybe like it's a circle or something, you know, it too is a circle and it goes through different phases or cycles where it expands and contracts. Like, I don't know, that sort of stuff I could understand. And then, uh, I also think, I also think of like UFOs and extraterrestrials and I think of psychedelic experiences and for lack of a better way of putting it, like the brain level or consciousness level experience of a really intense psychedelic trip. It gave me a taste of, something way larger and i don't know how to language it but definitely like something way larger at the level of consciousness that felt uh like interstellar or universal or like spectacular in scale you know and it didn't give me any permanent wisdom or anything you know i don't mean to insinuate that like i've been hit by some kind of lightning bolt but it was just kind of like a brief experience that is in its own slippery way, like memorable. (laughs) And it kind of speaks to me about like what, what might be going on out there and how, um, you, you talk about how extraterrestrial life forms might travel. 
through the universe. You know, I think that's a big sticking point for so many people, myself included, where it's like, well, how are they covering these huge distances? If we, mm. if we know that they're not, you know, maybe they have a base on the moon, maybe they have a base on Mars or something and they can shoot over here inside of a year or less. Mm. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like help me yeah, out. Here. <laughs> Stephen, yeah. Stephen Greer explains how they do it. And I think it's something like just how consciousness is a higher dimension. And in the same way, if I'm on my computer, I can instantly go from Gmail to any other website. That's like how aliens can do it. Like the whole universe is this lower dimension and they can somehow vibrate with this higher dimension and then just look down at a map and choose where to go. Except Stephen Greer says that there's still some kind of drag. So the teleportation isn't instantaneous. Like the farther away they're going, the more time it takes somehow. That made it a bit more convincing to me. But experiences with psychedelics seem to jibe with this, where on psychedelics you can feel connected to a higher dimension. And then Terrence McKenna always talked about how on psychedelics you're just literally going into a higher dimension from where you can look down into any space and time. And that's what Stephen Greer is saying also, but he has never used psychedelics, he said. Why would you Does need why would you sense? need to if you're him? <laughs> mm, yeah, yeah. You know. It would be interesting though for him to like smoke DMT and see what he thought. But I think he has a bias against psychedelics maybe. That's interesting. Uh, it doesn't make sense. It seems like he would at least have dabbled a little bit. Mm, yeah, he never did. He started meditating as a teenager. And he writes about how he stayed away from drugs and just never got into it. I think, too, like it's worth, as we talk about Stephen Greer, you know, there might be people listening who have seen some of his stuff on the Internet or have read about him. Um, the New Yorker just did a big piece where he was part of a story about um, UFOs. Like, I think this has mm -hmm. really entered the public consciousness in a broader and more serious way in this past year with the publication of that New Yorker piece. And I'm spacing on who wrote it. I, I forget who it was that wrote it, but it was a good piece. I really found it interesting. Uh, and then also with the 60 minutes, um, there was a piece on 60 minutes about this, uh, where, you know, Greer, I believe was interviewed. Um, I'm, I, I conflate all these different documentaries that I've seen, so I could be missing it, but certainly there were people from the military who were talking about witnessing um, an extraterrestrial um, aircraft, you know, or some sort of unidentified aircraft, um, like out over the Pacific, I think off the coast of California. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think it's if for people who don't have familiarity with recent media or recent uh, documentary filmmaking around this stuff, it's worth underscoring that it's not just specialists who are on camera talking about this stuff. Like the Stephen Greer's or the, ufo obsessives of the world for lack of a better way of putting it but it's like you know the former senate majority leader harry reed uh mm -hmm. there are other politicians and people from within the intelligence community and the government who frankly 
stand to lose more than they would ever gain by sitting in front of cameras and talking about this stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that adds a compelling piece of the puzzle, you know, when you're uh, assessing all of this. It's like if people with access to classified intelligence and military intelligence are clamoring for the release of information or are sharing information that was previously classified or hidden, like, mm-hmm. that should be, I think, significant to the rest of us. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. it certainly added legitimacy to it for me in a way, you know, I just don't see what they would stand to gain. Yeah. Yeah. According to Stephen Greer, all these recent revelations and media focusing on this topic, like the New York Times has been reporting on it. It's all misinformation in his view. Because he thinks there's a plan in place, like I've talked about, to hoax an alien attack. Which is just what I feel felt have felt compelled by after going through all this stuff. Seems plausible. Like, <laughs> like strangely plausible. You know, mm. It seems plausible to me as a way for bad actors to consolidate power. That's what, mm. I, that's what I think it seems plausible to me. Like, like you'd have to be like the level of cynicism uh, involved in trying to undertake such a thing and like perpetrate such a thing on the rest of us is like unfathomable. Like who are these people who could sit around going, yeah, let's do this. Like let's fake an alien attack so that we, everybody will be paralyzed with fear and easy to manipulate and we can have our way with the levers of power. But mm. especially after going through like the last decade of American, uh, of the American experience, I'm prepared to believe that such human beings exist. <laughs> uh, yeah. Sadly. Yeah. And- yeah, and then there's just the momentum of the military. I feel like people forget just how much war is a part of everything. Like right after World War Two, the Cold War started. And then right after the Cold War, there were the wars in Kosovo and Iraq. Oh, Vietnam? Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Korea, Vietnam. I mean, you know, like it's, it's been, I want to say it's like, there was a, it's like the old Gore Vidal book, like perpetual war for perpetual peace. But since what was it, you know, 1947, I believe it is. We've been at war constantly, uh, like with maybe, yeah. a, maybe a couple years off, but yeah, it's, it's a, it's like a nonstop machine. Yeah. And the military budget keeps going up. Now it's for the U.S. The open budget is seven hundred billion, and it's forty percent or so of the world's military budget. And after nine eleven, it went up big time. And I want to say it just went up another twenty five billion in the most recent. I could be wrong. I want to say I read that, but it never goes down. Like let's put it that way. I don't think mm. it, I don't think it's been I don't think it's gone down in my lifetime unless I'm missing something. I always feel like every time I hear about it, it's going up. Yeah, I feel like it's always gone up, and by now it seems like they're addicted to having to have these 
major raises every once in a while. And part of the evidence for this alien, hoaxed alien attack is from this woman, Carol Rosin. She was the spokesperson for Werner von Braun. Oh, right. Yeah, I've seen her. Yeah, who after World War II was brought over from the Nazis to work for the U.S. and he worked in NASA. And then later on he worked for this corporation, Fairchild Industries, where Carol was his spokesperson. And then he died of cancer. And while he was dying, he told Carol Rosin, according to Carol Rosin, that there had been a plan since the 50s that after the Cold War, there would be... I don't have the order right, but there would be a war on terrorism, and then there would be a war on third world crazies, like North Korea and places in the Middle East, and then there would be a asteroid threat. And then finally there would be a alien threat. And Werner von Braun said that this was all just to get more money for the military and specifically to get support for building weapons in space. And that's now happening, it seems. There's the space force that the government created. And what would be the uh, the objective then would I guess just be control if you have weapons that you have control over that are up in space. Yeah, yeah, because the U.S. has, the Pentagon has this doctrine called full-spectrum dominance where their goal is to just dominate in every spectrum. And it seems like that just comes out of naturally out of after World War II being the most powerful nation and having this dominator mindset, they just thought, like, how are we going to sustain this? And their solution was to just dominate. It seems like so, then, it's so, it seems also like childish and fear based. Like the word fear has just kept showing up in my head as I was hearing that. Like, how 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 afraid do you have to be to have that be the prevailing logic? You know, and like that's that that sounds like a good idea to you, and like and like a viable long term project too. Like I just, I don't know. It seems like yeah. it, it seems like uh, I I think I feel like we're doomed if that is the thing that carries the day. Mm-mm. Yeah, but hopefully, Stephen Greer thinks the aliens are like on standby in case anything too horrible happens and they'll intervene. Stephen Griffith, he thinks that humanity's destiny is to become peaceful and join the cosmic community. He just doesn't know when it's going to happen. I hope that's true. And I also, and I hope that if if you wind up taking the science fiction route with this book that you might write, Mm -hmm. um, and, and before I get here, um, is one is one mode prevailing like are you leaning in one direction fiction versus non not yet it's been hard to figure out yeah which one 
Okay. Well, yeah. if you do write either way, either way, I think you could address this. Um, I guess I was thinking of it in narrative terms. So maybe in, you know, this might l lend itself better to fiction, but I think you could do it in nonfiction too. But a fun thought project for me, as I consider the possibility of actual contact with like, like wide, you know, widely witnessed engagement with like uh, alien life forms that are far more intelligent than we are. Like ima mm -hmm. imagining that, as I think most all of us have at some point or another, even if only in the context of like, you know, some sci-fi movie or book that we're reading. But mm -hmm. if you think about it in real terms, if this were to happen, like talk about a watershed moment in the history of our species, like it would blow the minds of everybody. And do you, do you know what I'm saying? Like it would be enormously disruptive and it's hard to fully envision how that might um, manifest in people and in societies you know it would really freak people the fuck out <laughs> maybe in yeah. a good, maybe in a good way you know but i think it would there would have to be some some serious waves made yeah maybe extraterrestrials are aware of this and they've been gradually acclimating people to their existence because i there was a poll recently I think it said 50% of people believe there are extraterrestrials. I could have that number wrong, but it seemed like a lot. And then I've heard a lot about people in religions who say Christianity, it doesn't have to change their worldview. Because I've heard people talk about how God wouldn't create entities just on one planet. He would do it on every planet. I mean, I think we know that there are not entities on every planet. But I get, yeah. I get it. I mean, I, I, hopefully that's mm -hmm. the case. Hopefully it would create some sort of like expanded, benevolent, maybe like a, like a humbled view like the you know it would have to be humility inducing if such a thing were to happen yeah uh, like yeah. The, the awe would be incredible and you know what people would ascribe their own meanings to it like you or i might be like oh my gosh like stephen greer and people who have been writing about this stuff for decades like they were correct you know and uh mm -hmm. they've been confirmed and then there i think there could be people who may are from a maybe a more explicitly psychedelic viewpoint who would be like see the spores you know they, they prepped us and they were sent here for us to develop our mm -hmm. perceptual awareness to a point where we in our consciousness to a point where we were ready and then there could be people from a you know whatever religious standpoint who would view it through that lens so you know i think that would be like people would have, would i imagine would be working hard to explain it to themselves in a way that they could uh you know, process and in a way that would give them some ground under their feet. Cause I think it would be massively destabilizing. Yeah. And I feel like one big way it would be destabilizing is people would have to rethink what's possible instead of in terms of technology, like these UFOs prove that there's anti-gravity that you can turn make 90 degree angle turns and stop immediately 
and materialize and disappear. And then besides technology, people have to rethink how telepathy is possible. Because in every account I read, the aliens almost always use telepathy. And that's not explained in our culture yet. Like most people will deny that. And with gravity, there's not any explanation for gravity right now. Like if you go to Wikipedia or ask any mainstream scientist, they don't have an explanation for it. Really? Yeah, yeah. They can describe what it does, but they don't have a mechanism for how it happens. That's kind of similar, kind of similar to consciousness, right? I feel like these things are, yeah. it's like, it's like a, and, and it's, it makes sense that I would say really, because gravity is one of those things yeah. that at this point, you know, you know, Newton's law and the falling apple. And it's this kind of thing that's entered the common vernacular, you know, yeah. like we're all consciousness and like the collective consciousness and these different terms. But the truth is that uh, it's misleading to think that just because we might have words that are commonly agreed upon to describe a general experience or understanding that we actually have like a deep and clear understanding of either of them. And if we don't have a deep and clear understanding of things like gravity and consciousness, then how much do we really know <laughs> about anything? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, well, I want to shift gears. You know, I know we don't have forever. Um, and I want to talk to you about a few more things. So I want to talk to you, uh, about like your creative method, I feel like you as an artist are so good at paying attention uh, and to rendering on the page life as it is truly lived and felt and experienced mm. uh, to, an, to a degree that's uh, like uncanny uh, or certainly very unique. Like I think there's something very singular about your work because you've done such a careful job of documenting things and rendering it in fiction. Uh, I, I want to know, I want to hear you talk about how you do it because I think it's worthwhile for people who are fans of your work and also for people who might be working writers or aspiring writers to hear about how you approach it because I think you've been pretty ingenious in terms of using technology, for example, uh, and like integrating it into your creative approach. Um, I'll give you one example and then I'll let you sort of talk some, talk some more about it. Um, but the dialogue in your book in uh, leave society, the conversations between Lee and his parents is, um, unlike dialogue that I tend to see in most fiction. It's odd in some ways, but it's also like extremely true to life. It feels realer than real. And I know that you mm -hmm. did a lot of recording of like verite recording of you with your parents. Like you'd be hanging out with them in Taipei and moving about the city or hanging out in their apartment or whatever it is and recording. And then I'm imagining transcribing those recordings to either take stuff wholesale from those recordings and put them into fiction, or at least use them as a starting point to kind of um, make sure that you're accurately capturing what human conversation in that context really sounds like. 
Like, am I on the right trail? Yeah. Yeah. With Leaf Society, one way I got material was just recording me and my parents with my iPhone voice memos. And I ended up recording probably, I forget how many, maybe a hundred voice memos. And I lost all of them at some point. And out of all of those, I probably transcribed three or four. And they're in the book in some form. Like I transcribed them, then edited them down. Because they were the best ones or because you just like, you just picked three or four. Did you listen to them all after you had recorded them? No, no, there was just too much to listen to. Those, the ones I chose, I think they were just most relevant to the book. I forget the exact process of doing it, but I've been recording stuff and using it in fiction or nonfiction for a long time. Like in Taipei, the characters are recording themselves acting in a documentary. And then later on, I transcribe that. It's the scene where the characters are in Taiwan filming a fake documentary about McDonald's. And a lot of that was put in the book. And then in Trip, I recorded myself smoking DMT. And since Trip was nonfiction, I felt really that I wanted to be strictly nonfiction. So the only quoted dialogue I had in that book was dialogue I had actually recorded, I think. Okay. So obviously with Taipei, you're talking about the documentary that you shot with Megan Boyle in Taipei. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember seeing that, uh, you know, I don't know. I guess you must've put it up on the internet at some point, but I remember seeing that and laughing. It was really funny, but you guys were, mm -hmm. I think on LSD in a McDonald's mm -hmm. in Taipei. <laughs> And yeah. then, uh, and then, you know, in that instance, you both obviously knew that you were being recorded mm. in leave society, you're recording conversations with your parents. And I imagine you're not telling them that you're recording simply because I think people might get self-conscious and they did know actually. Oh, they and, did. Yeah. And I got over that just by recording so much, like they wouldn't know if I was recording specifically like each day and we just got so comfortable with each other that it, we just all forgot about it maybe oh that makes sense that, but you just kind of told them generally like hey i'm going to be recording possibly yeah. for a book project that i'm working on yeah i didn't have to tell them for a book project early on i told them they knew i was writing a novel about us and we would even talk about it like in the book, there's parts where the character's mom, where they just talk about the book. Right, right. And I think uh, there's something really moving to me about the relationship as depicted between Lee and his parents. And, you know, in a lot of different um, ways. But I think one mm -hmm. of them is the 
easy relationship they have with him as a creative person. Mm. Um, there's like a sweet kind of support and tolerance. It's been, a, and forgive me if I'm missing some area where this is not the case. Cause I read the book back, you know, when we exchanged, uh, manuscripts a, a while back. So it's been a bit since I've read it. Um, but that was my takeaway. Like, as I recall is that the parents are, uh, sweetly supportive. The father's like kind of amused, slash, you know, slash fascinated. Um, mm. but also like at a remove because, um, the father is more like scientific in his bearing. Um, but I don't know, like that whole, I, I, I guess I'm always moved when somebody has like an, ex when I see the relationship depicted between parent and child where the child is a kind of eccentric creative person who isn't necessarily a perfect fit for the kinds of like mainstream, um, professions and roles that, you know, most people fit into. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know. I find it touching. Yeah, me too. I'm glad that my parents are so supportive of me writing about us. I'm not sure exactly what led to that. Part of it is I think they were happy that I was giving them so much attention. Well, and I think too... I think a lot of people, even though it might be a little uncomfortable, I think a lot of people like the idea of, like you say, being paid careful attention to and written about by somebody who's good at it and trying to do it for the right reasons. I mean, if it's a hit job, then fine. You know, I can see how anyone would resist that. But mm -hmm. I, I don't know. I think there's something moving uh, and touching about the idea of one's child writing about um, their parent. You know, I think a lot of parents would be um, happy with that in a way. I think a lot of parents would also be unhappy. You know, there's certainly plenty of stories where parents feel violated or whatever, but they might have had it coming, you know, if uh, somebody writes a book about them, um, you know, detailing bad behavior or something. But uh, I think as well, and I, I mentioned this a little bit earlier, that I felt like a kind of a sweet mournfulness to this book. Um, like a growing awareness of parents aging and maybe I'm projecting because my parents are in their seventies and it's like, you know, you get to a certain age and you start to see your parents age and the pressures of time really start to make themselves felt, um, mm -hmm. and it's the inevitability of like, wow, we're not always going to be together. Like they're going to leave and they're going to leave sooner than later, just as an actuarial matter. And so I think I find a lot of the emotional sweetness of leave society, in the idea that you've really like captured your parents on the page in a way that it's like taking a beautiful photograph of your parents, you know, it fixes them in time. Um, and it frankly makes me want to do something similar. You know, I, I can't imagine that most writers who would read this book wouldn't have a similar impulse if they have a decent relationship with their parents. Like it's such a loving thing to do. And it's the kind of book that I think, both you and if you ever have any kids or your nieces, nephews, you know, future, future generations of your family, um, they'll be deeply appreciative of the work that you did to capture, you know, your family and your parents and like the intergenerational, um, like relationships. There's aunts and uncles that appear too, but like, just to put this down, it feels so valuable, um, and such like a good thing to do. Mm, yeah. Thank you. And 
I wanted to do it partly to help me get closer to my parents and make us more talkative to each other. Because I think writing about them helped me be more interested in them. And I would think of questions to ask them. Whereas without this book, I, I wouldn't have as much motivation. In, in, like now that the book is over, you know, the writing of the book and that process has concluded, have there been lasting changes to your communication with your parents? Like, has it improved in a permanent way or has it regressed since you've <laughs> been working on the book? I have been asking them less questions, but I, I still talk to them more than I did before I started the book. So I think it has lasting effects. And then when I reread the book, it also makes me want to talk to them more. Right. Yeah. There's a lot of affection in it, I feel like. And it's a very, mm. it's like a very un uniquely honest rendering. Um, it's not airbrushed, you know, it's like kind of a warts and all rendering. Your parents aren't perfect people. Nobody is. And, you, you know, I, I felt like it was carefully done, but I also felt like it was honestly done. Uh, and that's mm. kind of what you want, I think, as a reader when you're reading characters on the page. Um, mm. But under it all, there's just a lot of affection. Like you pulled it off. And uh, I think like the, I mean, I don't know. I shouldn't say this because I feel like it would be kind of a spoiler. But things sort of culminate in the relationship with Lee and his parents on the page in a, in a nice way at the book that I'll let readers kind of discover for themselves. But um, I want to talk with you about the parts of the book that deal with like health and the environment, the way that toxins, mm -hmm. you know, have uh, infiltrated our environment through industrialization and through radiation and nuclear power and all that kind of stuff um, in ways that are largely unseen to us on a day to day. You know, I don't think most of us spend our days thinking about this stuff because we're too caught up in the, you know, the minutia of work and family and all the rest. Um, mm -hmm. But in your book, Lee is constantly diagnosing and recommending to his parents natural remedies, mostly natural remedies to, um, you know, aches, pains, I don't know, skin rashes, whatever it is, you know, like there's a lot of that. And I was rereading the email that I wrote to you, like kind of like in the few days after I finished reading the book. So I could kind of refresh my memory and, uh, get back into my mind state, you know, that I was in right after I had just read it. Mm. And I, th I said to you, I was like, you know, I think this is going to be the part of the book that critics and maybe readers, you know, I, mean, I think it's going to be a part of the book that's like most talked about because hmm. there is a maximalism and a relentlessness to this aspect of Lee's character and to this part of the book that I think like, I went through phases as I read, you know, it was at first it was like, wow, okay, this is interesting. And then it was like, wow. And he's, he's still going like, he's, you know, the, <laughs> he's still making recommendations. He's still fine. You know, like, and you simply just, it never stops. Uh, and it accrues power as it goes. Uh, at least that was the experience for me. Um, where I found myself landing as a reader was on climate change. 
I felt there was something that you were saying through this character that spoke to me at that level, like that this is a book that has deep ecological concerns, even though I think maybe some readers might view it as like, uh, you know, a neurotic character who's fixated to an unhealthy degree on, you know, toxins in the environment. You know, like everything's toxic. I, you know, kind of almost like hypochondriacal. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, mm, I think mm. people could read it that way. But to me, I read, I, I read it like as an ecological thing. And I'm curious to know if that was your intent, <laughs> if you had a similar feeling as you were writing it, or if that's just kind of like, uh, you know, maybe a, I don't know, just me having my own experience of the book. And mm. I feel like I. I barely thought about the ecological aspects of natural health because I was so focused on just the personal effect and the effect on humans. So I didn't really explore that aspect of the book, I feel like, about how humans are destroying and poisoning the earth. But... But I do think about that. It's just unavoidable to think about that. Because I referenced the book Silent Spring. Have you read that? No, the, no, I have not. The Rachel Carson, I think it is. Yeah. 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 I mean, I'm familiar with it, but I haven't, haven't read it. Mm. In her book, she focuses a lot on the ecological effects of pesticides and then she only goes a little into the effects on people. What things did you think ecologically while reading my book? Oh, I, I think that... I, I think it's the force, like it's the maximalism of it. I think what occurred to me is that it had more impact on me when it comes to these kind of concerns, like these kinds of ecological concern, ecological concerns, mm -hmm. then I might get from a more traditional, like nonfiction approach. Um, mm. Mm. It just worked on me. And I found it funny too, in a way, um, mm. you know, because I guess maybe some part of me was just expecting you to modulate it at some point, but you mm. made the creative choice not to. And you know, I say that, and earlier we were talking about ways in which you um, worked with your editor to, you know, switch some things up or dial things back so that you wouldn't lose readers. But in this instance, you just you just went full out. It felt like to me. Yeah, it's it's just such a big theme of the book. Maybe the major theme, just trying to recover from all this stuff. First, to learn about how he's poisoned and brainwashed and brain damaged and all these things and then wanting to share it with his parents and then wanting to do something about it. I did think about how I wanted it to be like a nonfiction book with a message and I wanted the story to support that message, make it more compelling yeah, and I think it did. I think like it, it made me. I made, among other things, it made me come away with this really um, 
like a strong feeling of being in deep relation to our environment. You know, I think one of the great sicknesses of human beings is the way in which we feel like a, a disconnect from animals and plants and, you know, how we don't realize that their welfare or don't realize deeply enough to oftentimes how their welfare is directly tied to our own. Um, and when you start really digging into all the different ways in which air pollution, water pollution, pesticides in our food supply, you know, all these different things work on us in ways that, uh, we probably, most of us have no idea, you know, what, what's even going on. And I guess like part of me wonders if you ever doubt yourself, like, do you ever feel like maybe you're spiraling or you're, you know, you've taken in too much information or you, maybe you've gotten carried away or do you know what I'm saying? Like how much conviction do you have in your beliefs? Like, do you ever, like, it would, I feel like it would be hard to be calm in some ways if you're constantly aware of all the different ways you're toxified. Like, how do you find equilibrium? <laughs> mm -hmm. It depends on each belief. Like, I have fluctuating conviction in probably everything, every specific thing. And in the book, I feel like the character sometimes feel like feels like he's focusing too much on how he's toxified and how he wants to help his parents because he starts getting upset sometimes if his parents like don't listen to him <laughs> and then he knows that like that's definitely not helpful and then the other thing you said, I do feel like sometimes like I'm reading too far into something too quickly. And then I'll slow myself down. Yeah. Something that just occurred to me as mm -hmm. I was listening to you, it's like, you know, you have a deep scientific curiosity uh, mm. to a degree that I think distinguishes you from a lot of writers in literary fiction. I mean, certainly there are many who have, you know, scientific curiosity, but. Yeah, that's new for me because Trip is my first book where I first started doing that. In Taipei, I didn't reference any nonfiction and I didn't want to. I just wanted to write totally my own perspective. But in Leaf Society, that's a big part of it, reading books and then sharing these ideas. And I like it because then I get to talk about all these different ideas. And I've been enjoying doing media for this more because with Taipei I would only be talking about myself and it just I didn't have anything to say in the first place but now I can promote all these ideas and I like it well it's nice too as a reader you know as a reader it's like you get to well as a writer you get to leave kind of breadcrumb trail for your readers um, mm. I always love that you know when you find out like sort of what 
the underpinnings of a work of fiction or nonfiction are. It's easier in a work of nonfiction because there's like a bibliography or whatever. But, um, uh, you know, some of the best books I've read have been ones that came to me when I realized that they were like source material or a, a inspiration for a novel that I really liked, you know. Um, and you found a way to sort of like leave those, what do they call them now? Easter eggs? Like that, isn't that the the more contemporary term, uh, you know, it's like a way of leaving Easter eggs throughout your book mm-hmm. for discerning readers to kind of follow up and go deeper. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And it helps me learn all this stuff to have to share it to people. Cause I found that it's really hard to learn stuff and be able to explain it to people. I have to, write it down and like edit it it for a long time before someone can like ask me about the big bang and I can say some stuff. Otherwise I just forget it. So can I ask you uh, about the word NG uh, and I don't even know how to pronounce it. So I, I need to, are, when you're saying, Mm-mm, are you saying, Mm-mm? is that what it is? I'm, I'm just guessing, but like in the book in Taipei, there's a, just a kind of funny uh, passages where you're talking about this like monosyllabic expression that is common in Taiwanese or in, um, I guess, what's the, is that the word? What's the word that it would be? Mandarin. Mandarin. Okay. Um, what is NG? Because you see it on the page and it's impossible if you don't know Mandarin to not wonder how to pronounce it. Mm. Well, I've been using it sometimes. It just sounds like, hmm. That's it. Yeah, and I feel like a lot of people use it, not not just in Taiwan. Like Joe Rogan uses it a lot. Okay. You probably use it, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. sure. Yeah, I just I yeah. I think like maybe I would spell it like N M or M N, <laughs> but it's mm. it's almost like uh, it doesn't matter, you know. But I like there's something I don't know. I found it's uh, something great about it. It's like a like, what is it about that noise that's, like, cross-cultural? Yeah. We make it when we're, like, processing. It's like, it's, like a, it's like a sound that we make to indicate that we are successfully processing or trying to successfully process what someone else is saying. Mm. 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 <laughs> yeah, to me, it's, it means I have successfully processed. And then there's another one, HM, which is hmm. And that's more like interesting, whereas mm is more like I see. Yeah. Okay, that's what it means. I see. Yeah, and I feel like there is an M too, like between those two, like mm. It's maybe not so affirmative. It's not so affirmative, at least in its sound. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it's I don't know, it's, but it's like I think maybe what I like so much about it is the fact that it gave articulation to something that is so common in human communication, but that rarely gets talked about. Like these, these, yeah. these sounds might be among the most common sounds that we make. Uh, yeah. And we don't talk about them, nor do we give definition to them like this very often. Yeah. And, and have you seen it written in writing? Like you see like someone, I don't know if I have this, mm. You know what I see that mm. bo- that bothers me is mm-hmm. er, like when someone's mm. like when a character's like er, 
Like, I don't <laughs> ever hear anybody say that. Like, I'm always like, what the fuck is this? I don't say, er, like, it seems yeah, like, like I understand right. what they're getting at, but it's like, can't we get closer to the real here? Like, what's the more accurate syllabic sound? It's not, er, maybe. Yeah, I have seen, er, a lot. And yeah, written down, I get what it means, but I don't hear people saying it. It's like become the de facto, and I don't think it deserves it. I think we need to, right here, we are, uh, I, I am putting, uh, you know, my sword into the ground and saying, like, we need to revolutionize the ER into something that's closer to what actually, you know, what, what actually gets said, which is like, uh, it's more like UH, like, uh, people don't say, mm. er. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is more like UH. And I feel like people could start using NG more. Uh, yeah, I love it. And I think that, uh, you know, like once I heard you say it, I guess like I was like, I didn't know if there was some sort of uh, unique pronunciation, you know, specific mm -hmm. to Mandarin or something, but it's just, mm, mm, mm. Mm. yeah. And uh, yeah, it happens on podcasts a lot. I think I do it to like, it's just a way of signifying. I think I do it all the time on this show when people are talking just to yeah, sort of some... like make a noise to make sure they know that I'm following. Yeah. And then some people will say like, absolutely. But if you don't want to say something that long, you can just go, Hmm. All right. It's a more efficient way of saying it. <laughs> yeah, I think so. So, um, I want to talk, uh, let me see with the time we have left. I want to talk about leaving society. <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. I don't mean to be cute. Um, but I know, that, you know, you have left New York City where you lived for a long time. You now live in Hawaii. You've spent a lot mm -hmm. of time in Taiwan, but um, you made a big move, like geographically, that carries with it a lot of lifestyle changes. I mean, you can't get much more different than um, where you're living now on the big island of Hawaii uh, compared to like living in lower Manhattan, you know, like the big difference. And, uh, I guess I just want to hear you talk about like maybe the ways that it's impacted you. Um, I think a lot about where to live. People who listen to this show consistently know this. I've been musing about this for the entire lifetime of this show. Like, and I've never left Los Angeles. Um, I mean, oh. I've taken trips, but I like, I continue to live here and I wonder if it's the right choice. Um, uh, you made the choice to leave like a really urban environment and to live somewhere that's closer to nature, much quieter, um, like really beautiful, like, I guess, tropical environment. Is that the way to put it? And mm -hmm. can you just talk about that decision and like what it's meant for you as like a human being. And then maybe also as a creative human being. I don't think of it as having that big of an effect on me. After living in New York City, I lived upstate for like two years. So that was kind of like a halfway point with here. And then now I live with my partner, Yuka, here. And we live together. And that's been a bigger change, living with my partner. I've always lived alone. But in terms of the setting, 
I don't think it's like drastically changed my life. I just assume I'm healthier. Because I can. Was that why you did it? Like, I mean, did you do it with the intention of getting healthier? Yeah, that was definitely part of it. And then when my partner and I visited here in a chapter I write about in the book, we just started talking about it would be good to move here. And then it took us two years. And then a big thing that helped was my partner being able to work remotely once COVID started. Right. And then after moving here, we've been able to get three cats, which has been has been really good. And what are the cats named again? Nini, Leo, and Lolly. Okay. Uh, I you've shared. I think you shared a picture of Nini with me. Yeah, yeah. I, I want to say, but I love cats. My wife is like horribly allergic, so we can't have any. But I, uh, I think they're great. They're great to have around. They're so. I like the. I don't know. It's just that the kind of the old adage about how cats don't need you. Uh, like they have a, this great independence to them, but also they can be affectionate, and uh, they're such great athletes. And there's some mis- There's like a mysteriousness to them that I really love. Yeah, they're they are great athletes compared to dogs. And then sometimes they just seem really stoned, like they're dogs but really stoned. <laughs> and they just seem creative. They're always doing something new. And one of our cats acts like a dog sort of Leo. Like if we see him in the yard and call out his name, he'll sprint back at us. So do you, like, do you, you know, your book is called leave society. You turned, turned away from living in like this really crowded, like the, the capital of the world, you know, New York city. Like, mm. um, are you in retreat from anything? There's nothing. Is there, is there not much to that? Like in terms of you making this choice to, to go to, uh, Hawaii, like I'm overthinking it or like, projecting yeah that's definitely part of it changing my physical location but i feel like a bigger part is changing what culture i consume and just how i relate to other people and just dominator culture generally trying to leave that and that's their no matter where I live, I feel like on the internet or in stores and just in my own interactions with people. Even in Hawaii, like you notice it much the same as you did in New York. Yeah. Yeah. Mostly just online. Like my online experience is exactly the same here or there. You haven't changed your online habits like your internet habits since you moved to Hawaii? Like, was there any decision, like I'm going to be on social media less or I'm going to read paper books more, all the stuff that we try to do to get healthier mentally around that, around that stuff? There has, but it's on, been on its own time frame, overlapped with moving here. Like I started doing that 
way before moving here, wanting to change those things. Um, do you think you're going to stay there for yeah, like, the I long haul? So. Yeah, yeah, probably. Well, I love the Big Island. Uh, in conversations I've had with people over the years about like Hawaii, like whenever they're like, well, what island should I go to? I always say the Big Island, which I don't feel like is the popular choice. Most people say Kauai uh, or, mm. or Maui, but mm. I love mm. the Big Island. It's such a beautiful and like strangely varied from like a geological and topographical standpoint. There's so much there, you know, there's so many different like microclimates and the, the volcanic side of the island is like, talk about extraterrestrial. Like it's so, so beautiful and just like otherworldly. Yeah, I think Northern California is good too. I've visited there a few times. Haven't you thought of moving there? Yeah, it's just so expensive. It's like that's the problem. Like I think Northern California is paradise. I mean, my family actually lived there in the 1970s when I was two and three years old. For you know, my dad had a job uh, transfer that took us out there for a couple of years, but you know, that was it. That was the time to be there. You could live in San Francisco relatively cheaply you could afford a home on a single salary in suburban san francisco like those days are done so you you essentially have to be really wealthy to be able mm. to to be able to exist there um those tech companies and all the money and their big employee bases have just like sucked up all the real estate and driven the prices high um i have more than a dozen friends probably maybe even more than that if i counted it out who've had to leave um, mm. for those reasons, it just has become untenable to live there unless, you know, you're really fortunate or locked into some great tech job or something. Yeah. It seems similar for Hawaii. The big Island is a lot cheaper than everywhere else. Oahu is like as much as New York city. Yeah, I can imagine. I'm sure, you know, it's limited real estate, right? But yeah. the, the big Island is, is, uh, is cheaper than the others. Yeah, yeah, significantly cheaper. There's so much land here, and more people have been moving here since the pandemic, and the prices have been going up a little. Sure, sure. All right, well, maybe I'll move there. I'll have to think about it and try to talk to my wife <laughs> and sell her on it. But uh, Yeah, that'd be good. Yeah, I've just, you know, I think it's also worth underscoring that, like, no matter where you go, you bring your head with you. So, yeah. And I think it can be easy to sort of fall into that trance where you feel like you're going to move someplace and it's going to fix you. Um, mm. But you know, that's not the case, at least not automatically. It might be a, an environment more conducive to fixing and healing and recovery, but you still have to do the work, right? Yeah, definitely. That's partly what I was saying probably with that. It hasn't drastically changed me. But I know when it's healthier for me, just the air quality and all that. Well, I got to say, having known you for, I mean, God, how long have we known each other? It's approaching 15 years, maybe, maybe more even. Yeah. And communicating with you here or there, like for what it's worth, I've noticed like big shifts in you since um, you started eating psychedelics. <laughs> Mm, uh, I think that would be, I mean, that might not be the exact point of Genesis or the pivot point or whatever, but, mm -hmm. um, 
like you just feel, I just feel like you've opened up, um, on the page, mm. on the page, but also, uh, personally, and it's been great to see and just good to get to know you better. Mm. Yeah. After Taipei, I feel like I've changed. I think that's the case. And, and there's also this like great document, you know, you've left like a great trail of documentary evidence of this change, like to a level of detail that is rare, you know, for, I mean, I'm trying to think of artists who have done similar stuff like Carl, um, Knausgaard, I guess has mm. done a similar kind of work, you know, like really maximal detailed, exhaustive self-examination mm. that also like, you know, rises to the level of high art. Uh, I think that's what you've done. Uh, and just hats off to you. It's always a pleasure to read your books. Um, I really appreciate all the rigorous like reading and intellectual energy that goes into them. Like it's a real service uh, to the reader. Um, and it's just right up my alley. It's really stimulating and um, fun to read. And I can't wait to see what you come up with next. I, I really hope whatever form this UFO book takes, I think it's going to be um, a good one. Thank you. All right, man. Well, listen, it's good to see your face um, and to hear your voice. Congratulations on Leave Society and uh, be well and good luck with uh, whatever comes next. Yeah, thanks for reading my work and having me on. I hope your book comes out so more people can read it. Okay, there you have it. That is Tao Lin. His new novel is called Leave Society. It is available now from Vintage. You can find him online at taolin.us. You can follow him on Twitter, at Tao underscore Lin. He's on Instagram. Find him on the internet. Once again, the novel is called Leave Society. Go get your copy right now. It's an excellent book. The Other People podcast is offered freely. Every single episode of this show over the past decade is available to you for free. It's a listener-supported program. If you like the show and you want to tip your server, you can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod, patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you want to write to me, the email address for the show is letters at otherppl.com. If you want to get merchandise, just uh, go to the show's website, otherppl.com. Click on the uh, t-shirt in the left sidebar. Get yourself a t-shirt. The Other People podcast has its own official app. It, too is free. It's available where apps are available. Go get the other people with Brad Listy app. It's a nice way to listen to the program. So what am I forgetting? Oh yeah, you know, with regard to the Patreon for this show, you can support the show for as little as a dollar a month. There are different tiers, just so you understand. And as it goes up, you can get stuff. If you, you know, support the show at a certain level, you can get a t-shirt or a tote bag or a coffee mug, a book club subscription, all sorts of different things. I'm not exactly sure who my guest is going to be next week. We're going to live in mystery. I recommend uh, Leave Society. You should read it. 
It's one of those books that makes your mind uh, larger. All right. 